to another edition of the Fat Tail Investment Podcast. What a week we are having in markets, or a couple of weeks, I should say. The ASX is getting absolutely hammered at the moment. Uh, so we're going to touch a little bit about that. Uh, and there's a few things that we can say about that that are, that are really interesting to me. So when things get volatile and they get pretty ugly uh, like they do now, you should actually be as much as possible getting more interested in thinking about uh, buying because obviously the values everywhere are going down, 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 and down. Now, that's just not to say that you or I can pick the bottom. However, you got to think of Warren Buffett here, the famous, most famous investor of all time. You, you got to be fearful. <laughs> got to be fearful. Got to be greedy when other people are fearful and uh, fearful when others are greedy. So it doesn't mean you actually have to. Definitely want to start kicking X uh, and going, well, hmm, you know, in bear markets like we're in now, uh, the good and the bad get sold uh, together. So one idea that I've had, uh, and this is just an idea, I'm not saying this is a buy yet or whatever, where has been some of the most pressure been lately? It's been to do on the property market. We've had people coming out saying that it could for 15 to 20% interest rates are going to make it totally unaffordable for everybody. Everybody's bailing on the property theme. Actually, we have very good evidence to suggest that property can run for uh, at least another four years, possibly five. Um, not so much in Sydney and Melbourne anymore, but definitely the other states are, are primed to keep going. Uh, and when you look at the median values around there, like Perth and uh, um, Brisbane and all those places there uh, are actually pretty cheap, especially compared to Sydney and Melbourne, uh, and there's good rent. So anyway, to my view, property stocks have absolutely been hammered way too much relative to the the outlook that I actually see is pretty fairly positive. Um, now, the recent interest moves in interest rates, of course, if they continue, will change that. But as of now, um, Ten, things tend to look uh, worse than they turn out to be. Um, so we'll have we'll see how we go there. But certainly for my book, I'm definitely interested in property stocks. Now, one property stock that you might want to keep an eye on is called Regroup, which is realestate.com.au, which is the, the premier um, real estate site in the country. Uh, has been for years. It has been hammered recently. It was around a dollar, um, last year. Now it's back down towards one hundred and ten. But on the whole, it is a very, it is a business with a lot of competitive advantages and uh, a foot in lots of different areas, internationally, and now breaking into the the finance market here in Australia. Um, so I'm not saying it's a buy today, um, but I certainly would put it on your watch list. Have a think about it. And I noticed that today, uh, so again, the market got hammered today. Um, it actually regrouped, held steady. Um, so that could be a sign that it may have uh, priced in uh, the, the recent downdraft in, in property and slowdown that we're seeing and all those things. Um, but the value is still there, still a very profitable business with a very powerful uh, position and lots of competitive moats. So I just thought I'd, that's something that I'm thinking about. Um, you might have different ideas about stocks that have been smashed up. So if you do, write in and tell us and, and we'll take a look at it and we'll see if we can uh, work out what's going on. But certainly the, 
the damage across the board has been pretty indiscriminate. I can't think of one sector that's held up uh, in this particular sell-off. So uh, another interesting sector to watch is the oil sector. The oil price is still $100 a barrel. Um, and some of the juniors have, are, are taking a hit. Well, the reality is the backdrop to their earnings or their potential earnings is still very strong. So there's just interesting things to watch like that. Um, so it depends what you're looking for, whether it's income or you know long-term, short-term. Um, so definitely at the moment, the momentum is down. Um, so you have to watch your downside a lot. But uh, I try as much as I can to to f- find stocks that look like they have good, good uh, buying support. Um, another one uh, I can venture to talk about that. I've noticed some of the advertising stocks like um, U Media and Seven, uh, Seven West Media, uh, it's just stocks like that seem to be holding up reasonably well uh, under what is intense selling pressure. So certainly the, the stocks that don't have revenue or don't have earnings are taking a hit, but uh, that's what happens in these type of markets because they just don't have the earnings to support them. So when the market is under pressure like this, you really want to go back to how much money your stock is making, uh, are they generating cash, and how much um, multiple is, is the market putting on those earnings. And I can tell you right now, there are some stocks generating big cash flows uh, now trading on very small multiples. So if you're prepared to take a one- to two-year outlook, um, it's definitely a time to get interested. That's uh, certainly what I'm doing now, I, I write a, a newsletter called Australian Small Cap Investigator. So this is where we look for the small stocks that can can grow fast and, and bring a big capital gain. So it has been a torrid time in the small cap sector for a while now. So um, I've been through these cycles before and they always, well, historically, uh, come out the other side and, and we'll get another upswing at one point. And the beauty, if you're coming to this fresh, is that the values are way lower than they were uh, six to 12 months ago. So definitely um, check out Australian Small Cap Investigator if you're able to. Another thing you might want to think about, if you go back to a couple of episodes ago on the podcast, we had a guy called Peter Backer on. Now, I think in that conversation, I'm fairly sure we mentioned that his service fat, um, first mover algo alert was in cash. Um, and I was sort of joshing him a little bit because uh, it's kind of boring to be in cash when it's, it's just the algos were constantly saying, just stay in cash, stay in cash. Or bonds, I should say. They were staying in bonds. Out of the stock market is the point. Um, well, now we're seeing the wisdom of, of that product and what he's built there because it has been a torrid time on the ASX uh, for a while now. Very volatile. Um, and certainly his subscribers are, uh, are fairly happy that they're, they're not involved right now because it's just so punishing lately. And as I said, there's not been many sectors that, uh, or if any, that have been able to uh, stand up under this pressure. So um, again, depends what type of investor you are, but definitely I would encourage you to check out uh, Peter's service um, because it, it, on a personal level, I did take a, a lot of risk off in my self-managed super fund, et cetera, Part of the reason being that uh, for that reason. So again, very helpful there navigating the markets, which are very tricky. But the downdraft is, or a big chunk of it has happened now. Could we go lower? Absolutely. But again, now's the time to start kicking over some ideas and and see what value is out there. Now, part of the reason I I bring that up is because 
as you may or may not know, for a long time I've written about an idea called the 18-year property cycle. So my analysis or my theoretical framework says that uh, we have another four years at least to run on that. So that's where I'm coming from. So whenever I see things that chime with that cycle, I get interested. And that brings me to today's guest. So part of Australia's wealth comes from exporting natural materials. So that money flows back into high wages in those areas and big profits, big dividends, which then is soaked up in the real estate market. So um, that's part of the reason uh, Very, I'm very bullish uh, on a place called on a place called Perth, on the city of Perth, because there's so much wealth being created um, in the mining industry that it, it will, or should do, get soaked up into those real estate values. However, what if those earnings were to go away? Well, over in Perth, they tend to deal in iron ore, gold, lithium, that type of thing, which is looking good. On the east coast of Australia, we have the New South Wales and Queensland coal mines. Now, coal is at the moment extremely profitable for those guys digging it out of the ground. But how sustainable is that? And is that likely to be disrupted anytime soon? I happened to be reading a paper the other day and I saw a report mentioned where the guys had looked at the data and the evidence appeared to them that China is building its own railway networks um, to transport coal from Mongolia to its to its users in northern China and central China. And essentially, they want to cut out the seaborne trade that uh, Australia uh, uh, markets its coal in. So that was interesting to me. So I thought we'd get the guy on to have a little bit of, uh, a, bit of a chat about that. Um, now, he's a, an academic. Um, his name is Jared uh, Gozens. And also... Strangely, in a way, uh, Alex Turnbull, the former PM son, appears on the paper as well. So I encourage you to tune in. It's very interesting because obviously coal stock, well, I say obviously, if you follow the market, um, coal stock's been very strong lately. And again, are these cash flows sustainable? So over the long term, Jorrit's view is that they're probably not because China is working to diversify away from coal. Um, I know my colleague, Rick Kahneman, is much less actually he's skeptical of the conclusions that Jared reaches. So anyway, you can decide for yourself. But we got Jared on to talk about his paper. So here he is discussing China and their effort to uh, move away from coal. Well, here we go. I happened to pick up the paper the other day, and I was reading about a new report that came out, and it's to do with China's decarbonisation and energy policy towards the coal sector. This is, uh, this is the report I'm holding in my hot little hand here. And it, the reason it struck out to me is because at the moment, coal prices are absolutely booming. And obviously being interested in the stock market, it is driving the stocks up uh, because they're just generating so much cash here. And yet the overall uh, tone of this report is that Australia's exports to China could be on the way down fairly shortly. So I thought I'd Get the man on who uh, is one of the key authors of the report, uh, which is Jarrett here, and he joins us uh, today. Uh, thank you for coming on, Jarrett. Can you begin by telling us how did this report come about? Yeah, thanks. Um, so how it came about um, is actually some time ago already. This was roughly uh, 2019, 2020 that we started to think about this paper. 
uh, and it had to do with uh, first of all sort of the plans for reduced coal use in China, the long-term plans uh, that were becoming more and more clear. Uh, but also we knew that a number of major uh, rail uh, projects would be coming online, uh, and and we expected that those rail projects are are, are really meant to be put in place by the by the Chinese government to sort of de-bottleneck their, their transport system. And so we figured that those two trends together or those two pressures would really uh, change the competitiveness of uh, uh, seaborne coal uh, it, into the Chinese market. And so we figured uh, we should uh, assess this again with a very explicit uh, focus on that transport. And was this before... Uh, or after that China took an aggressive stance against Chinese, uh, Australian <laughs> coal sales, rather? Yeah, no. So um, actually what you also just mentioned now, that this, this peaking coal prices at the moment, um, this was before uh, the Chinese put in place that, uh, that embargo uh, and also before all the other stuff happened, like uh, the, the, the COVID supply disruptions, uh, the economies or industrial activity going up and down uh, very rapidly and, and the war uh, in uh, Ukraine. Um, all those things, we um, uh, they, they are not part of our analysis, but they will definitely be part of a follow-up analysis because it, it, it obviously matters a lot. Yeah. So when you talk about those times, so we go back, coal prices are you know, probably were, were not particularly interesting. There was a general perception that coal was on the way out and certainly the financial markets weren't interested in it um, mm-hmm. uh, because of that stage, because of the, the rise of ESG investing and the perception that renewables were coming. Um, mm-hmm. By the time you release it, obviously it's uh, the whole situation has changed. Did it get, uh, did it, the report generate more interest than you expected or, or less on its release? Oh, it was more interest than we expected, really, and, and and probably that had to do a lot with the fact that these coal markets have gone a little crazy uh, over the past uh, months or, or year and a half, really, uh, and also the discussion in Australia about opening up new new coal mines in in the Galilea Basin. Um, basically, what we think, it, our report has a time horizon of, of five years out or 10 years out uh, that we assess the uh, competitiveness of, of imported coal into China. Uh, and what we, our message really is that these, um, the, this, these crazy prices that we see in the coal market right now, these are very temporary uh, phenomena. And we, we believe that the long-term picture will, will still be the same, which is a fairly downward trend. Uh, and we were actually quite surprised with how rapidly um, demand for, from China, at least, would come down. Because the, really, the, um, the two pressures are decarbonization policy and uh, added uh, rail infrastructure. And really, if you only look at the sort of the most um, optimistic demand scenario, which would have coal at a, at a one one and a half percent growth over the next five years then still we would expect about a drop of 25% demand for uh, seaborne coal imports over the next five years. So that's quite rapid, actually. Obviously, there are plenty of people in the community and in the financial markets that are hostile to coal and coal investment. From that, or is this purely a look at China's uh, energy and industrial policy that's driving this shift? Um. 
No, so I mean, uh, the 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 things that that driving these shifts is is one is the decarbonization policies or the Chinese policymakers will definitely start to become a bit more serious about um, reducing their their emissions. Although, again, I sort of have to stress that that we took two levels, basically an optimistic and a pessimistic uh, development of, of coal demand in China. In the optimistic scenario, it's not even all that much decarbonization. It's fairly unambitious. Um, but we just know from uh, the past 10 years, China simply has been using roughly the same amount of coal since 2013 already. It's very flat. So it's, it's, it's not at all uh, optimistic to think that uh, coal uh, total demand growth uh, would be roughly zero uh, in China for the next couple of years. Um, but yeah, again, it's it's especially that uh, rail network and that rail network. One of the key uh, projects is is the Haoji Railway, which goes from Inner Mongolia, two thousand kilometers south to central China, which was the most difficult market to supply. Um, two hundred megaton a year project, which is roughly the same amount as China uh, imports in thermal coal over a year. Uh, and, and that project is operational now, but it started to be planned already in 2010, 2011. So it takes a lot of time before those plans really um, get so realized. Essentially, China is now able to swap out Australia for Mongolian supply. That's the, the base case to the, to or, the dynamic. Or, or domestic supply. Yeah, that's, that's exactly, uh, that has been the plan all along. And, and perhaps also as a bit of historical perspective, uh, in, in 2005, 6, 7, 8, I think still China was actually exporting coal rather than being the uh, biggest consumer on the uh, seaborne coal market. Um, and they never really wanted to import any coal. They've got plenty of their own coal. The problem was that demand uh, developed so very quickly that even the Chinese couldn't build rail lines quick enough to keep up. But because of the um, demand starting to plateau, um, and, and these projects coming online, we see that they are now really starting to catch up with with that with those sort of plans. And coal obviously splits into two markets: there's thermal coal for energy, and then there's coking coal for mm-hmm. uh, steel, etc. Is this applicable to both both those? Yeah. So uh, for thermal coal, it's really uh, a matter of uh, the rail lines making sure that they get to use their uh, uh, the, the coal from their domestic coal mines in, in their own uh, uh, power plants. For coking coal, the big difference really is a brand new and very big coal mine in uh, Mongolia, so the country Mongolia, uh, right next door. Uh, it's called the Tavan Polgoy uh, project. It's brand new and it's uh, very cheap. It, it, it's only a few meters of dirt that you need to strip before you get to the uh, coal. Uh, I think production costs of ten, twenty dollars a ton, which is which is barely nothing. And because they put in a rail line, uh, it's it's a short rail trip from Mongolia to Hebei province, which is where uh, all the steel making happens in uh, in China. So that mm. really is very competitive compared with uh, Australian coke and coal. I'm just thinking um, in terms of. Uh... Australia's perspective, it, did you look at all whether Australian exports could go to other markets like India or, or elsewhere, or is this just purely a look at what China is doing in relation to Australian supply? Yeah. Um, so the current paper really focuses on the Chinese market and how 
developments in China would influence the, uh, the coal that China imports. We didn't look so much at, at switching or, or changing uh, of different coal flows. That is, that is a project that we're going to do next. Um, however, any reduction in uh, uh, global coal demand in, in both the thermal and coke and coal markets will be bad news for, uh, for any exporter, including uh, Australia. And at least in terms of thermal coal, I know that the Australian mines are also fairly high up on the uh, uh, supply curve, so they, they might very well be, be hit by this, uh, even if there are uh, other markets remaining. Yeah. Um, from the Australian perspective, do you think that the federal government and the two state governments where coal is produced, Queensland and New South Wales, do you think they're preparing for this scenario in terms of reskilling that coal workforce that exists already? Um, I, I mean, I know that it's a discussion. Uh, I'm, I'm not too convinced that that discussion is taken uh, seriously enough just yet, especially the, uh, the immediacy of it is, is maybe not uh, clear enough just yet, is, is what we would say. Um, it's probably clear enough to, to anyone, including the folks that work in these industries, that this is uh, on the way out and that uh, future perspective for, for employment is probably best, you probably best need to look uh, elsewhere. Uh, but again, what we found is really that, it, that these reductions in demand in the global uh, seaborne coal market isn't really something that is going to play out over the next decade or two decades, but that this is something that is going to happen over the next two, three, four, five years already. So in that sense, we, we feel that uh, a bit more haste is, uh, is quite needed with those um, diversification or, or reskilling re plans. Yeah. yeah. Swinging back to China, you mentioned that obviously they have a decarbonization shift also. But do you think that their energy security concerns actually trump that and, and it's more about uh, ensuring the supply from Mongolia rather than having the seaborne imports as a security issue more than an actual decarbonization issue? Yeah, so I, I would say, uh, I mean, it's difficult to put uh, shares on it, but I would definitely say, like, let, let's call it one-third decarbonization, two-thirds uh, energy security at the moment, especially, I mean, it's always been an irritation, I think, with the Chinese policymakers that they would need to import all this coal when they have all that coal themselves. It, that, that they would have seen that as a bit of a failure in their planning. Um, so they're, they're very happy that they're catching up with that infrastructure. Um, and now, of course, being uh, with the irritation that they have with uh, Australia and the uh, volatility of the prices in, in the uh, seaborne markets, uh, that will only make them. Um, they will. They will just double down on their efforts to to keep uh, foreign coals out and and get more of their own coal into their own steel and power plants. Yeah, I notice you've got here as one of your co-authors Alex Turnbull. Yeah. Um, how did he come into the picture? Last time I checked, he was in the funds management industry. Yeah. Yes, but uh, well, to, to what I can say, or or what I at least uh, uh, experience with him is, is that uh, he does that sort of uh, investment on the basis of these sorts of models. Really, uh, the, the, this model is is 
is one of the things that he does. Um, and uh, his his involvement was really quite early on already that um, basically the type of model. So it was his idea like, hey, these uh, uh, infrastructure projects are going to come online. We can analyze how that affects import by building a transport model, essentially. Um, and he uh, had some involvement that uh, this, this data that you need for it, the, because we use coal mine uh, level data, uh, and a bunch of other things uh, is uh, fairly expensive. Uh, that was uh, his contribution to the project as well. Um, and uh, like I said, he he does a lot of this sort of modeling. Um, so he was he was uh, a great help also to uh, to discuss the modeling itself with uh, throughout. How do you even go about getting that kind of data? I mean, China is notorious for its <laughs> dubious data, sure. statistics, and all that type of thing. Well, it, it depends. Yeah. So, I mean, some some source of data will be more uh, 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 unreliable. To, yeah. <laughs> than 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 others. Yeah. I mean, there's um, coal mine level data is something that we, that you get from a, from a commercial supplier, um, and and they have estimates based on geology and 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 company surveys, etc. Uh, and and that would just go to the costs and the uh, what do you say the, the qualities of the coal that come out of the ground. Um, I wouldn't be too surprised that that data is actually quite quite accurate. The the, the data that you have to be concerned about is, is total level of consumption, et cetera. Uh, but there are different international uh, sources that provide that. So you can sort of triangulate and get a little bit of an idea of uh, where where those numbers are at. Was it a case of were you feeding this data into like an artificial intelligence sort of thing, or what what was sort of the next step once you once you had it? How did you put it into? Because I'm reading through your paper, it was reasonably complicated for me as someone who's not an academic, and that just mm -hmm. to pick through exactly what was going on. Do you want to just delve in a little bit more to how you sure. do it? Sure. Uh, so it, it's not artificial intelligence, but what we have is we basically create a uh, or replicate a map where we uh, pinpoint every individual coal and uh, steel plant in China. We pinpoint every mine, both in China and Mongolia, and and also uh, in the rest of the world. Although that sort of feeds in from uh, from a single link from the seaborne market, uh, and then we have a very good representation of all the transport networks, sort of the rail lines, the ports, and all the highways, and you connect them to each other. And then it's an optimization model. Uh, so we we ask the model to supply all those coal and power plants with a or, or a uh, steel and power plants with a certain amount of coal with certain qualities at the lowest cost, given that there are constraints on how much coal a mine can produce or how much coal a rail line might ship every year. And that's how you end up with uh, with, a, with a final number. So now that you put the report out there, is there a thing where now you're tracking it and you'll be able to go, uh, okay, the scenario that we've painted is is playing out or it's not playing out? Are there sort of trigger levels that you're watching for now? Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> it's actually uh, uh, quite something to make a prediction for the year 2025 because that's not all too far out. Uh, and, and then to say that Chinese imports would uh, reduce by 25%, that's, that's, uh, uh, it's a fairly strong uh, or, or big number. Um, so what we're looking at mostly is well, two things. One is 
how are uh, new projects, uh, rail projects really uh, coming online? And secondly, what are the reports on total imports? And at least for the past two years, because when we talk about these reductions, we, we actually compare as the base year 2019, and we predict, uh, we, we make comparisons with 2025. So we predict anywhere between 25 and 45% reduction in imports in the year 2025 compared to 2019, uh, depending on the level of uh, uh, decarbonization ambition. Uh, and in 2019, thermal coal imports were 215 megatons. We would predict it to be any well, around 155 megatons uh, by 2025. But already for 2020 and 2021, even though Chinese power consumption has still grown at roughly five or six percent a year, we've seen fairly drastic drops in in thermal coal imports already. Um, that might, of course, have to do with those crazy prices in the seaborne market. But it is at least signals that yes, they can actually supply their own demands uh, quite well by now. It's interesting because. I mentioned coal stocks earlier and how well they've done. They still trade on tiny, tiny multiples, which is basically the market sort of going, okay, they're, they're making lots of money at the moment, but we don't really see it as sustainable. So uh, in an odd mm. way, even though those coal stocks have been great in the last uh, well, about a year now, actually, um, they are in a way kind of conforming to your thesis as, as it's uh, put down. So it'll be interesting to see if that changes in any other way. Um, all right. Uh, you mentioned that your next report is going to be looking then at, at other countries and their coal. Uh... Yeah. Um, so what we'll do is we'll expand the, the model to include the uh, demand and supply from, from all other countries uh, a bit better. And the reason why we want to do that is because now we also want to look at that sort of substitution effect. Uh, when, for example, China decided we'll close our borders to Australian coal, then that means that Australian coal will go to other markets and other suppliers will now supply China, uh, that, that kind of substitution. And that will have a cost. It, it'll, it'll mean that the Chinese will be paying more for their coal uh, by definition. Uh, and it'll also mean that the Australian uh, suppliers will be receiving less for their coal. Uh, and we, what we're going to do is uh, model that and then calculate how much extra did China pay, how much did it cost the Australians, and you know, sort of compare the two and say if it was a, a good strategy or, or if, you know, who who ended up hurting the most from uh, from that decision by the Chinese. Mm. And how long can we expect that to take? Is that is it? It's months, uh, obviously, to put these together. Yeah, yeah, something like months. Yeah, yeah, it, it should be, I don't know, probably a couple of months, three months, something like that to put that together into a working paper. And then uh, it could very well be anywhere between six and 12 months before it's out in an academic journal. Unfortunately, it does take a little bit. Uh, when you release it to the journal, do you make a concerted push to put it in front of like pol policymakers or is it just you just throw it out? with the press releases and, and try to get attention to it how does it how do you try and push what you're saying forward yeah so that, that always differs very much with uh with the sort of paper like how important are the conclusions or how surprising uh in this case uh we had the press release and we we, we send it to uh media uh a week or two before so that they are prepared for it 
Uh, and, and we're going to organize a workshop with policymakers and, and see if we uh, get much attention for them or if they were, uh, I don't know, unsurprised by these conclusions. But we'll, we'll have to see about that still. Yeah. Oh, I don't. Well, thank you so much for coming on because I think, as I say, this is a really important issue, not only for investors who are either in or out of coal stocks, um, but also for the country and especially uh, the people that live in those areas where a lot of the coal wealth ends up because there's a lot of jobs mm. in that area and lots of tax revenue for the two state governments that uh, ship it out. So it'll be certainly interesting to see to come on. So uh, definitely keep me on your on your list when you uh, get out the next one and we'll, we'll have a chat and sure. see how things are tracking when that one comes out. Sure, will do. Cool. Thank you very much for coming on, bud. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs>